This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 14. In the creation of the world and all things in it, the true God distinguished by certain marks from fictitious gods. Sections 12. Use of the doctrine of Scripture concerning the holy angels. 13. The doctrine concerning bad angels or devils reduced to four heads. First, that we may guard against their wiles and assaults. 14. That we may be stimulated to exercises of piety. Why one angel in the singular number often spoke of. 15. The devil being described as the enemy of man, we should perpetually war against him. 16. The wickedness of the devil not by creation but by corruption, vain and useless to inquire into the mode, time, and character of the fall of angels. Section 12. Whatever, therefore, is said as to the ministry of angels, let us employ for the purpose of removing all distrust and strengthening our confidence in God. Since the Lord has provided us with such protection, let us not be terrified at the multitude of our enemies, as if they could prevail notwithstanding of his aid. But let us adopt the sentiment of Elisha, that more are for us than against us. How preposterous, therefore, is it to allow ourselves to be led away from God by angels, who have been appointed for the very purpose of assuring us of his more immediate presence to help us. But we are so led away, if angels do not conduct us directly to him, making us look to him, invoke and celebrate him as our only defender, if they are not regarded merely as hands moving to our assistance just as he directs, if they do not direct us to Christ as the only mediator on whom we must wholly depend and recline, looking towards him and resting in him, our minds ought to give thorough heed to what Jacob saw in his vision, Genesis 28.12, angels descending to the earth to men and again mounting up from men to heaven by means of a ladder, at the head of which the Lord of hosts was seated, intimating that it is solely by the intercession of Christ that the ministry of angels extends to us, as he himself declares, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. John one fifty one. Accordingly, the servant of Abraham, though he had been commended to the guardianship of an angel, Genesis 24.7, does not therefore invoke that angel to be present with him, but trusting to the commendation, pours out his prayers before the Lord, and entreats him to show mercy to Abraham. As God does not make angels the ministers of his power and goodness, that he may share his glory with them, so he does not promise his assistance by their instrumentality that we may divide our confidence between him and them. Away then with that platonic philosophy of seeking access to God by means of angels and courting them with the view of making God more propitious, a philosophy which presumptuous and superstitious men attempted at first to introduce into the religion and which they persist in even to this day. Section 13 The tendency of all that Scripture teaches concerning devils is to put us on our guard against their wiles and machinations, that we may provide ourselves with weapons strong enough to drive away the most formidable foes. For when Satan is called the God and ruler of this world, 
the strong man armed, the prince of the power of the air, the roaring lion, the object of all these descriptions is to make us more cautious and vigilant and more prepared for the contest. This is sometimes stated in distinct terms, for Peter, after describing the devil as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour, immediately adds the exhortation, whom ye resist steadfast in the faith, 1 Peter 5.9. And Paul, after reminding us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, immediately enjoins us to put on armor equal to so great and perilous a contest. Ephesians 6.12 Wherefore, let this be the use to which we turn all these statements. Being forewarned of the constant presence of an enemy, the most daring, the most powerful, the most crafty, the most indefatigable, the most completely equipped with all the engines and the most expert in the science of war, let us not allow ourselves to be overtaken by sloth or cowardice. But, on the contrary, with minds aroused and ever on the alert, let us stand ready to resist. And knowing that this warfare is terminated only by death, let us study to persevere. Above all, fully conscious of our weakness and want of skill, let us invoke the help of God and attempt nothing without trusting in Him, since it is His alone to supply counsel and strength and courage and arms. Section 14. That we may feel the more strongly urged to do so, the Scripture declares that the enemies who war against us are not one or two or few in number, but a great host. Mary Magdalene is said to have been delivered from seven devils by which she was possessed, and our Savior assures us that it is an ordinary circumstance when a devil has been expelled, if access is again given to it, to take seven other spirits more wicked than itself and resume the vacant possession. Nay, one man is said to have been possessed by a whole legion. By this, then, we are taught that the number of enemies with whom we have to war is almost infinite, that we may not, from a contemptuous idea of the fewness of their numbers, be more remiss in the contest or from imagining that an occasional truce is given us, indulge in sloth. In one, Satan or devil being often mentioned in the singular number, the thing denoted is that domination of iniquity which is opposed to the reign of righteousness. For as the church and the communion of saints has Christ for its head, so the faction of the wicked and wickedness itself is portrayed with its prince exercising supremacy. Hence the expression, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one. Section 15 One thing which ought to animate us to perpetual contest with the devil is that he is everywhere called both our adversary and the adversary of God. For if the glory of God is dear to us, as it ought to be, we ought to struggle with all our might against him who aims at the extension of that glory. If we are animated with proper zeal to maintain the kingdom of Christ, we must wage an irreconcilable war with him who conspires its ruin. Again, if we have any anxiety about our own salvation, we ought to make no peace nor truce with him who is continually laying schemes for its destruction. But such is the character given to Satan in the third chapter of Genesis, where he is seen seducing man from his allegiance to God 
that he may both deprive God of his due honor and plunge man headlong in destruction. Such, too, is the description given of him in the Gospels, Matthew 13:28, where he is called the enemy and is said to sow tares in order to corrupt the seed of eternal life. In one word, in all his actions, we experience the truth of our Savior's description, that he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, John 8:44. Truth he assails with lies, light he obscures with darkness, the minds of men he involves in error, he stirs up hatred, inflames strife and war, and all in order that he may overthrow the kingdom of God and drown men in eternal perdition with himself. Hence it is evident that his whole nature is depraved, mischievous, and malignant. There must be extreme depravity in a mind bent on assailing the glory of God and the salvation of man. This is intimated by John in his epistle, when he says that he sinneth from the beginning, 1 John 3, 8, implying that he is the author, leader, and contriver of all malice and wickedness. Section 16 But as the devil was created by God, we must remember that this malice which we attribute to his nature is not from creation, but from deprivation. Everything damnable in him he brought upon himself by his revolt and fall. Of this, Scripture reminds us, lest by believing that he was so created at first, we should ascribe to God what is most foreign to his nature. For this reason, Christ declares, John 8.44, that Satan, when he lies, speaketh of his own, and states the reason, because he abode not in the truth. By saying that he abode not in the truth, he certainly intimates that he once was in the truth. Or by calling him the father of lies, he puts it out of his power to judge God with the depravity of which he was himself the cause. But although the expressions are brief and not very explicit, they are amply sufficient to vindicate the majesty of God from every calumny. And what more does it concern us to know of devils? Some murmur because the scripture does not in various passages give a distinct and regular exposition of Satan's fall, its cause, mode, date, and nature. But as these things are of no consequence to us, it was better, if not entirely, to pass them in silence, at least only to touch lightly upon them. The Holy Spirit could not deign to feed curiosity with idle, unprofitable histories. We see it was the Lord's purpose to deliver nothing in his sacred oracles, which we might not learn for edification. Therefore, instead of dwelling on superfluous matters, let it be sufficient for us briefly to hold, with regard to the nature of devils, that at their first creation they were the angels of God, but by revolting they both ruined themselves and became the instruments of perdition to others. As it was useful to know this much, it is clearly taught by Peter and Jude, God, they say, spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 2 Peter 2.4, Jude verse 6. And Paul, by speaking of the elect angels, obviously draws a tacit contrast between them and reprobate angels. (laughs) 